Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. No Gavin today. Uh, in fact, pretty sparse in the studio. We'll be having a lot of call-in guests uh, for individual topics. But to keep me company, I have with me once again Yuan Ming Chow of the China Post. Yuan Ming, thanks for being here. It's great to be back. Of course, you cover all things social media. What's hot in social media this week? Um, the big thing has been that uh, ban on uh, uh, eating dog and cat meat in Taiwan. It's gotten a huge uh, reception uh, outside of Taiwan, even. Yeah. Uh, that's very true, actually. That's that's an interesting topic. So we can bring that up again at the end of the show. Uh, but anyway, thanks once again to Yuan Ming Chao. On the show today, a whole bunch of stories to cover. We'll run through them real quick right here. The saga of the Taiwanese human rights activist who has been detained in China continues. We give the latest on that. The other saga of Uber continues as well after the U.S. ride-hailing app uh, began offering services again in Taiwan just yesterday. But they've scaled back more than a little bit. Then, cue the baby-making music. We'll discuss a new push by the government to address Taiwan's notoriously low birth rate. And in the second half, Taiwan just celebrated its first Freedom of Speech Day. We've got two special guests that will join us in just a bit to discuss stories related to advances and challenges faced by Taiwan's free and open democratic system. That's all coming up. But first, let's start off with a bit of week old news. It is old, but it's got legs, and we're going to see if we can uh, get any more life out of this one. Yes, just about one week ago, U.S. President Donald Trump met with Chinese President Xi Jinping during a two-day summit at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida. Just something about Mar-a-Lago, just the word. It just sounds silly right off the bat. It's not quite presidential. But nevertheless, this was big news for us here in Taiwan. The main question was how would Taiwan itself figure into the discussions? You know, this is an especially big question because, as we've discussed before on the show, Trump has rocked the boat in cross-strait affairs, first making that phone call to uh, President Tsai Ing-wen, uh, and then later hinting that he may not recognize the one-China policy that sent shockwaves through the cross-strait universe, both the policy establishment, the average people on the street trying to get a handle on everything, all the way up to the officials. Everybody was wondering, what is Trump going to do? Well, he backed off a little bit from those statements later on. He has now acknowledged the one China policy. But still, this is, this meeting was really where the rubber meets the road, where we really get an idea of how these uh, great powers are going to talk to one another, how they're going to deal with these policy issues face to face. And lo and behold... Taiwan really didn't come up that much. Uh, at first, it looked like Taiwan wasn't mentioned at all, uh, but it came to light later in the week that indeed uh, Chinese uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Wang Yi did raise the issue behind closed doors. That you know, news of that closed door discussion came to light later in the week, uh, but apparently it was a very brief discussion, and the U.S. just kind of. Brought, you know, responded with it's just boilerplate Taiwan Relations Act kind of rhetoric. No surprises there, more or less. 
Uh, so, Yuan Ming, you know, as an observer of all this, uh, kind of interesting that uh, Taiwan didn't feature bigger. But uh, as you were telling me before we turned on these mics, maybe not that surprising given uh, the big news coming from North Korea. Yeah, exactly, Keith. Um, I think um, observers here, the government, especially breathe a sigh of relief. You know, when this no surprise um, came out of the the meeting, um, we a lot of observers were worried that. Um, Trump might do something that would uh, would uh, endanger Taiwan's interests, or or at least you know compromise things. And nothing of that came to light. And as you mentioned, North Korea is a is a big issue in um, North Korea. Um, the situation brewing there um, uh, points to the cooperation that uh, Trump is seeking with uh, the Chinese president and the Chinese government. So. Um, in this sense, we see that you know the U.S. and their their willingness and their need to cooperate um, with China on issues relating to this regional security, but also with you know the the um, issue of economics and trade, uh, really made Taiwan at this point at the, as an issue uh, a peripheral one. And I think in a lot of ways. That, I mean, given that Trump is a surprising U.S. president in many ways, maybe that's surprising. But if we just look at the course of U.S. politics in general, a lot of people have pointed out that that's kind of the way things usually go is, you know, U.S. presidents talk a good game uh, on the campaign trail. But then when they really start to govern, they realize, you know, all these other issues are way more pressing and you kind of have to pick your battles a little bit more than uh, maybe you would suspect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, look at uh, Trump's uh, recent uh, remarks about NATO um, and his, you know, before he came into office, you know, this uh, friendly tone towards Russia. Now that's changed with what's happened in Syria. Um, His talk on uh, the one China policy was, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, quite uh, earth shattering uh, to policy uh, experts in Washington and also, of course, here. And now, you know, there's some inertia. You know, it's all sort of sinking back into this um, this uh, normalcy. Normalcy, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, as we sink our way back into normalcy. Uh, We're actually going to turn things over to Gavin. Uh, Gavin is not in the studio with us today, but his uh, ghost remains. It's uh, still haunted by uh, the fumes of Gavin. Uh, And we're going to turn things over to him because he actually spoke earlier in the week with J. Michael Cole, who is a longtime Taiwan watcher and also the chief editor of the uh, Taiwan Sentinel. And they discussed, uh, only a few days after the summit itself, what they saw as the main significance of it. Uh, now, when they had this discussion, we it had not yet come to light that uh, Wang Yi had raised some of those Taiwan issues. Uh, but I think that uh, a lot of what they discussed uh, is still relevant uh, for our analysis. So, I'm going to turn things over now to Gavin and Michael. So the meeting between Donald Trump and China's President Xi Jinping in Florida came and went without much of a mention of Taiwan, which sort of contrary to what was said before the meeting. So do you think Taiwan's omission from the chat post-meeting from the two official sides was a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I mean, yes, there certainly was talk prior to the meeting in in Mar-a-Lago that uh, Taiwan, which supposedly is a core interest of China, would be raised at some point. 
there was even chatter and rumors that uh, she would try to compel President Trump to sign a fourth communique uh, dealing uh, with directly with Taiwan. Now, that being said, uh, there also were indications that uh, the two leaders would... Uh, it was a nice breaking uh, meeting, so there was little expectation that they would actually go into details. Uh, so the expectation ultimately that that it would you know go down into the nitty gritty of, of relations with Taiwan and all that that wasn't the reason why President Xi was going uh, to meet with Trump. They just wanted to make sure to determine whether they can work together and then take the, take the relationship from uh, from there. Of course, now the decision by U.S. government uh, to launch missile strikes uh, against the Syrian air base, uh, just as President Xi was in in Miami. Uh, prob- probably made it even less likely that the more controversial issues, such as Taiwan, uh, would would be touched upon during their uh, their meetings. And obviously, there's talk of now Trump going to China for a meeting with Xi. Do you think Taiwan could play large there? Well, he certainly agreed uh, to visit China at some point. Um, all of this will be, I mean, their ability to to start touching on issues like Taiwan. Uh, will be contingent on several things, first of which is the, I mean, the current climate. We don't know when President Trump visits China, uh, what Pyongyang uh, will be up to. We don't know the status of territorial disputes in the East China Sea, in the South China Sea, uh, and other other issues. If the United States becomes embroiled again uh, in a major contingency in the Middle East, chances are they will not want to discuss too many uh, other issues, such as uh such as Taiwan. The other thing as well is that, again, not knowing when President Trump will go to China, uh, for the time being, uh, almost not a single deputy-level officer in U.S. government has been appointed. Uh, And those are the individuals who, under the new framework that Mr. Trump and Mr. Xi agreed upon for uh, their dialogue, uh, those are the people who would sit down with their Chinese counterparts and, and work out uh, all the complexities of issues such as Taiwan. As long as those people have not been appointed at state, at defense, and, and other uh, government agencies in the U.S., it's going to be very difficult uh, for the U.S. and China to sit down and, and work on those issues. So for the time being, it would be nearly impossible uh, for China and the uh, United States to sit down and, and work out their differences on Taiwan, for example. Right. Do you think this is a good thing for Taiwan in the short term, but a rather bad situation in the long term? Well, uh, it's a good thing for Taiwan as long as there isn't pressure from one corner or another to, you know, to drastically change the current status quo in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, this is the most comfortable place for Taiwan to be in right now. Uh, and there was, you know, there was a sigh of relief uh, when people here found out that Taiwan had not been mentioned, or as far as we know, uh, had not been mentioned uh, during the summit in, in Mar-a-Lago. In the longer term, again, uh, that depends on Taipei's ability to reassure the Trump administration that uh, you know their their current status is also in the American interest, and this is evidently something that the Chinese side will try to uh, disabuse the U.S. government of in encouraging them to you know revisit the status quo and their position on Taiwan, and hopefully in the direction that's more favorable to the Chinese. So all of that is contingent on, again, who will be peopling uh, Mr. Trump's administration and how receptive they are to changing uh, the status quo. Ron, of course, this so-called limbo land, we'll call it, for example, this is obviously affecting 
um, arms sales to Taiwan? Because, of course, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, there was talk that the Trump administration was already considering an arms package to the island. But, of course, with no one in place to tick the right boxes, this has no doubt just disappeared into Never Never Land. Well, yeah, uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, much of the arms sales would probably uh, have consisted of uh, some of the articles that were already under consideration when, when Obama was in office. Now, of course, that's that's a very long process uh, that involves the two sides as well. The Taiwanese side needs to be proactive. They need to you know list the things that they're looking for, and they need counterparts at, at DOD and other agencies in Washington that, that can handle that thing. Uh, eventually, there should be an arms sale. Uh, but it's not something that that would happen in the early early months, if not weeks, uh, of an incoming administration. That would have been too soon, uh, and that would have occurred at a time when there was so much uncertainty surrounding the future of, of uh, Sino-American ties that to release uh, an arms package to Taiwan at that point would have been counterproductive. And to me, I mean, even though I certainly am uh, favorable to continued U.S. arms sales to Taiwan. At the same time, uh, I think that, that the Trump administration's decision to put that uh, package on hold, whatever it was, uh, was probably the wise thing to do. You do not want to derail uh, U.S.-China relationship, because if that relationship goes south, it won't be beneficial for, for Taiwan either. All right, and once again, that was ICRT's Gavin Phipps in conversation with J. Michael Cole of the Taiwan Sentinel. Moving on, uh, now we're going to give a quick update on a story we've been covering for about a month now. Uh, it's been featured in just about every show over the last couple of weeks. Human rights advocates Li Mingjia remains detained in China. Whereabouts unknown, uh, just to remind everybody, Li went missing on March 19th. Ten days later, Beijing said he had been detained for engaging in activities, quote, endangering national security. So kind of a vague charge there. We don't know where he is. We don't know exactly what China thinks he did. So this has been percolating for some time now, kind of in the background. Big news this week, just to update things, is that his wife, Li Qingyu, uh, tried to gain entry to China to search for her husband. But at the very last minute, she was barred from bo- boarding a plane at Taiyuan International Airport. Uh, The way that she was barred is that she uh, presented her Taiwan compatriot travel document, and that was rejected. So she is not going to be able to go uh, into China and advocate for her husband, which in in a lot of ways is uh, really not that surprising. Upping the rhetoric even a little bit further, we had a Chinese official come out uh, responding to her attempts to enter, saying that outside interference would, quote, only render the issue even more complicated and harm the interests of the person concerned. So uh, some heavy rhetoric coming out of China this week. Uh, Then later, the plot thickened even a bit more uh, when Li Qingyu, uh, uh, once again, the the wife, uh, went public with accusations that a go-between delivering uh, a message from China uh, pressured her to drop the case. So she's basically saying that uh, this individual, a Li Junmin, in her view, now this is, we're, we're really getting mostly her account of uh, what was said in that exchange. In her view, she feels that he was pressuring her, maybe even threatening her, to kind of drop this case, let it go. Uh, this uh, Mr. Lee actually have connections to the KMT, so this led to uh, this wife uh, accusing the KMT of selling out Taiwan. So case is just getting more and more complicated and more and more fraught, uh, and uh, really now kind of complicating domestic politics here in Taiwan, Yuan Ming. 
Yeah, um, this issue. I mean, the the longer it uh, continues to fester, um, will really actually test. I think the Democratic Progressive Party, the DPP's, you know, patient, no frills. Cross-strait approach that it has taken uh, since it took office, and in the past, you know, these um, telecom fraud cases uh, with uh, Taiwanese nationals being um, deported to China. This um, the DPP has always used, you know, its boilerplate statements about um, returning them and uh, cooperating on legal matters. But this is different because this is a ex DPP staff member, um, and um, this has to do with um, you know, human rights issues. And so, I mean, we would all agree that those telecom fraudsters, what they were doing was no good. We wouldn't necessarily all agree that a guy telling some folks about his experience with democracy is no good. I think uh, very few of us would view that as a crime. Yeah, I mean, I think in Taiwan it's very important that we um, come together on this because this is, uh, whatever your political persuasion, this is a Taiwanese citizen who's been abducted. And um, I think at the very least we need to know um, what are the details behind why he's being held uh, detained, sorry, uh, where he actually is, and and especially important is um, that these visitation rights be be granted. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah just kind of a, a quick legal point uh, to point out is that normally uh, I think that the visitation rights would have been protected under something called the Cross Strait Joint Crime Fighting and Judicial Mutual Assistance Agreement. Uh, but that has been suspended since Tsai Ing-wen came into office. So this is really a case that highlights not just China's own human rights record and the way that they're dealing with dissidents currently, but really does uh, highlight current cross-strait tensions in, in a very significant way. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, that that agreement was signed, you know, when cross-strait relations were, you know, good mm-hmm. during the um, previous administration. And this is kind of that conundrum where... Um, you have these deteriorating cross-strait relations, and then you have an incident like this where the previous uh, mechanisms could have, um, you know, righted them or mitigated such problems, and they're not, they're not working. And um, this is frustrating because those mechanisms are supposed to um, be there for this reason. Um, that was kind of the whole point. Like, when relations get bad... Your mechanisms and institutions to deal with bad situations seem to melt away. So that they were put in place just for this kind of situation. So it kind of defeats the purpose. Exactly. And I think, I think for China, they also want to use this incident to, to test the DPP, to see what the resolve is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it also represents kind of a missed opportunity for the Kuomintang, for the KMT, because um, at this position, they're not in power. And they could, you know, put more pressure on the DPP to do more on this situation, but I don't think um, they have done that sufficiently. Mm. All right. So obviously a story that is still unfolding, and we will continue to follow it as it does unfold. But we have an awful lot of stories to hit today, so we're just going to keep on moving to another one that we actually also want to hit pretty quick. want to squeeze it in just because it's a story that uh, we've also covered a number of times on the show. Uber is back in town. Sort of kind of but different. The U.S.-based company, of course, suspended its ride-sharing services from Taiwan in February uh, following huge fines levied by the Ministry of Transportation. 
Ministry of Transportation levied those fines because it believes Uber is operating in Taiwan illegally. Uber registered, of course, under an information technology license. But the Ministry of Transportation maintains that it has been offering taxi services, which it is not licensed to do. Blah, 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 blah. We've talked about this a million times. Anyway, the point is those services returned yesterday, but in a very watered down form. So they will no longer be helping individual drivers get in touch with individual riders. Instead, what they are doing is they are working with car rental companies to help them find customers. So the important regulatory issue that they are now skirting is they are not putting riders in touch with unlicensed drivers, which was one of the main issues before. Now they're only working with these companies, and these companies only work with licensed drivers. So that's that's one huge issue. But it's really not it's not the only issue that uh, Uber had. And so some of those past issues that they faced are now potentially going to still cause them problems, even if uh, this particular model that they've hit upon is perhaps legal. So what I mean there is they still have a lot of back taxes and they still all those fines that they racked up uh, are still outstanding. And we are talking about a huge chunk of change here. We're talking about 830 million NT in penalties owed to the Ministry of Transportation, along with 135 million in uh, revenue tax. So that is still a thorny issue. Yuan Ming, do you think that they have a prospect to, you know, find uh, become an honest business here? Yeah, that's an interesting question because if you look at Uber and how it's positioned itself in other markets around the world, um, there have been cases where you know they enter a market and they're not able to you know succeed there. They withdraw and they come back with a different tactics. So I think it's really important that we continue to observe what these tactics are. Right now, it looks like they are cooperating. They want to be legal in the sense that they're working with rental uh, companies and uh, licensed drivers. But again, as you mentioned, those 800-something million in in fines should be paid. Um, And their new app uh, is out. And um, I think I've I've already heard complaints about, you know, uh, uh, riders not able to find an... um, um, rides or that uh, prices weren't as uh, low as they used to be. And of course, you're going to have those disaffected former Uber drivers. You know, they're not going to have an income source. And so maybe we have to observe how uh, these different uh, situations develop in the future. Will there be, you know, a backlash from former Uber drivers, you know, working f- uh, for more lobbying? for loosening of government uh, regulations, this remains to be seen. We have to to, to see what um, they do about this. All right. So once again, hmm. another developing story, uh, but we just wanted to bring you the latest on it because uh, obviously there's a lot of twists and turns to this thing and we wouldn't want you to miss out on the latest. But we have one more big story that we want to hit before the break. Cue the music. Yep, we all know Taiwan is not making enough babies. Now the government is taking matters uh, into its own hands. <laughs> to do so, what they've done is they've uh, opened up an office. Nothing helps make babies like a new office. Uh, and what this office is uh, potentially going to do is they're going to support baby making in a number of different ways. For one, uh, they're uh, hoping to offer new subsidies to new parents to uh, kind of take the financial pinch 
off of would-be parents. And also, it sounds like they're coming up with plans to offer maybe child care services or just ways in general that make it a little bit easier to be parents. So, Yuan Ming, this is something that you've written a little bit about in your role uh, at the China Post. Uh, what? Tell us a little bit more about uh, what exactly the government is looking at here and what kind of measures might be on the table. Yeah, as you said, you know, the falling birth rate in Taiwan is a continuing problem. And uh, this year, um, the number of 14-year-olds uh, will be less than the number of 65-year-olds. And that's the first time that's happened. Um, obviously, the government's been worried. You know, the fertility rate, you know, the number of uh, babies uh, per woman in Taiwan um, is currently about 1.18. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was even lower in 2010. It was around 0.895, mm-hmm. so less than one child per, per family. And so right. and the government um, is worried. And so uh, this comes at the heels. You know, the, the former health minister, he broached the idea um, last weekend, you know, Children under the age of six, the government should, you know, subsidize their their everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and the government, you know, the, the current health minister says, "Wait, hold on a minute. We don't have that those, that money." <laughs> but that costs money, guys. Yeah, that costs a lot of money. Okay. <laughs> and so, as you mentioned, they're they're uh, they're setting up this office, which will be under the health ministry, mm-hmm. and it's going to be um, opened around. It'll be June or July, mm-hmm. and they're setting. Uh, these long, uh, medium and long-term goals. That they're, one of their goals is to raise the fertility rate to about 1.6. Mm. Um, but this is a very high number, yeah, considering that it's currently 1.18. Yeah. Right. Well, it just just to put these numbers in perspective for our audience, just because uh, uh, for for folks that don't follow, you know, uh, fertility demographics news, uh, you know, the weird people who don't follow fertility demographics news. Um, my unless I'm misinterpreting uh, this, my my understanding is that uh, like the the replacement rate would be two point one. Yeah. So, you know, if if everybody is having on average two point one, that's enough to replace the two parents. But anything lower than that means that your population is going down. So. A, uh, a, a, a fertility rate of 1.1 is way below 2.1. Yeah. So that's that's your population is going down pretty fast once you're that low. And even 1.6, I mean, as you said, that would uh, take significant effort. But even then, yeah. you're still not quite replacing the population. Yeah, it's uh, Taiwan is entering this super aging society phenomenon. It's one of uh, we have the one of the lowest, if the if not the lowest, um, birth rates in the world. So um, this isn't going to be a matter of uh, giving out subsidies. You know, it's going to require, as the former health minister says, you know, he wants a concerted um, interministerial effort. You know, mm-hmm. coordinating with interior ministry, economics, education, health, and you have to talk about housing. Yeah, housing is a huge. Uh, factor in this, it, not just in Taiwan. If you look at uh, other countries around the world, the UK, where there's a direct correlation between high ho- high cost of housing and low birth rates. Yeah. Mm. So, in your view, one of the main challenges uh, to birth rates in Taiwan, you you would link that directly just to the stagnant wages and the fact that. Uh, people are making about the same amount of money that they were in the late '90s. Exactly, um, wages, you know, barely match up to inflation here, if not, you know, lower. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, the young generation, you know, they're not looking. They're not looking for the government to subsidize these births of these kids. They want a stable uh, setting to raise a family. And in 
the more traditional conception, that's a house. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not looking at home ownership in Taiwan, look at the rents in Taipei. They're eating out, you know, a fourth or a third of uh, average salary. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to feel comfortable or, or secure in studying a family at those conditions. So what do you think, I mean, short of just giving everybody a whole bunch of cash, is this like really just a matter of fundamental economic reform is what's needed here? What do you you think uh, has to be done? I think it's a mixture of, uh, of certain things. Of course, there's economic reforms that are required but they're very difficult. Look at these uh, new work week regulations and the whole brouhaha that's been uh, caused just just to make you know a five day work week. Mm-hmm. Look at the resistance uh, from that. So you're facing an uphill battle. Um, but you also are looking at societal uh, and cultural uh, shifts that need to happen. You know. Who should be taking care of the kids? You know, mm-hmm. it's not just um, it's not just the uh, the mother. You know, mm-hmm. we have to look at you know what's the role of the family and um, and how we can change uh, also corporate culture to to include more paternity leave for for Taiwan's workers as well. Yeah. Kind of uh, just highlighting all the points that you're making this week. Uh, we, we maybe got uh, something of a villain in uh, Taiwan's question of what is to be done with the younger generation and uh, how, how are they to you know, make, uh, find the good life for themselves. I'm not going to call him a villain, but certainly a lot of people on Facebook did. Uh, we're talking about here Shu Zhongren, who is the president of PX Mart. And uh, he's gotten into a, bit of, a little, little bit of trouble for what, uh, how he's chosen to describe that younger generation. Yeah, um, he was on a he was promoting his book in Taipei on Tuesday, and then um, he made remarks about uh, young people today being spendthrifts, and um, and he he basically said, "Look, keep your head down, work hard, don't ask too many questions. Your boss will notice and give you a raise eventually." You know. People who work hard uh, get ahead in this world. That's that's what I've taken away from my uh, years in the professional sphere. And, you know, as soon as he made this remark, you know, there was a huge backlash from netizens. Uh, They started posting on PX Mart's Facebook. Um, There were reports that PX Mart started deleting some of the comments. And, you know, um, netizens really took issue to the fact that... uh, uh, Xu had said that, you know, when I was starting out in 1988 as a youngster, um, my starting wage was only NT9000. And then so these netizens are like, well, back in um, 1970, uh, 1977, sorry, um, back in 1977, the, you know, the price of uh, beef noodle soup was, what, 3NT or something <laughs> like that. And you could buy hundreds of bowls. Now we can only buy uh, a lot less or something like that. And so... He has had to. He he quickly apologized for mm-hmm. for his statements, um, and so this really um, this is really um, symbolic of you know these uh, of uh, what you can say is um, you know this gulf between generations. Mm. Yeah, it kind of draws to mind. Uh, I don't know if you caught this uh, a couple of months ago, but there was this brouhaha in Australia about. Uh, this idea that all the young people are spending all of their money on avocado toast every week. And, you know, they're, why are these kids not saving up for a home like we used to do? And they're just spending all their money on expensive brunches. And uh, that, you know, kind of set off its own controversy there.
there because uh, the point a lot of young people were making were, well, why should I save money for a home when I won't be able to afford it for the next hundred years? You know, even if I was exactly. saving every single year. And so it seems like a lot of countries are kind of going through this. And uh, in Taiwan right now, young people, it seems like it touched a bit of a nerve. People are a little sensitive about this uh, and uh, really struggling. Yeah. Um, if you look at this issue and you, you would think, uh, considering other issues that are getting the, the retirees in, onto the streets, is pension reform. Mm-hmm. And of course, pension reforms aren't... Um, aren't really uh, perceptible to young people because they're not going to retire mm-hmm. anytime soon. But of course it affects them. But this, you know, this is a lightning rod issue when you're, you're telling young people um, not to do anything about low wages or, or just to, you know, just to tolerate the You just got to work harder, guys. Yeah. That's, that's all it is. <laughs> just got just to gotta work harder for those beef noodle soups. All right. Well... That is about uh, all the time that we have for the first half of the show. We're going to give you guys uh, a little break. Now, we expect all of you to, you know, enter your data, do your extra work during the break, uh, because, you know, uh, your bosses will notice. It will not go unnoticed, uh, this extra effort that you put in. But when we come back, we will be looking at freedom of speech in Taiwan following the very first celebration of the now annually observed Freedom of Speech Day. Uh, We're going to be looking at two stories uh, related to the theme of freedom of speech. Uh, First, the decision by Reporters Without Borders to locate their Bureau for Asia right here in Taipei. So, interesting decision by them, we'll discuss. And then, Taiwan's government is making moves to take on fake news. But do we really want the government telling us what's true and what's fakery? We discuss when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Yuan Ming Chow, keeping me company in studio. Freedom of speech now has its own holiday here in Taiwan. President Tsai Ing-wen marks the very first Freedom of Speech Day just last Friday, holding a ceremony commemorating the 28th anniversary of the death of democracy advocate Deng Nanrong at his tomb in New Taipei City's uh, Jin Baoshan Cemetery. During prepared remarks, Tsai pledged to continue fighting for Taiwan's people of democracy and freedom. And this is pretty interesting because, I mean, if we take the death of Deng Nanrong and then, you know, take that as a starting point and then look all the way over the past 28 years, there's a lot of changes in terms of freedom of speech here in Taiwan. You know, we're looking at the end of the martial law era. Uh, the beginning of democratic elections uh, at the presidential level, and uh, a number of peaceful transitions of power. So really uh, a very eventful couple of years, uh, strengthening of many institutions, strengthening of uh, the civil sphere here in Taiwan. And so just to kind of get in the freedom of speech mood, uh, we have two stories that we're going to be covering in this second half of the show uh, related to freedom of speech, uh, coming at it from two kind of different angles. Uh, We're going to be getting into both of those in a second. But uh, before we do, 
Yuan Ming, you know, as a, as a reporter, as a guy in the news business, uh, freedom of speech must be fairly important to you. So uh, somewhat gratifying that it's got its own holiday here in Taiwan now? Yeah, if we got the day off, that'd be even better. But. That would be even... Maybe just journalists would get the day <laughs> off. That would be good. Now, the government would like that. They would like that too would, much if uh, we didn't go to work that day. Yeah, we definitely have... Uh you know, a duty. Um, but it's, it's, it's good that it's commemorated. Um, but um, what's more important, I think, is that um, Taiwanese society continues to have the conditions to maintain its vibrant journalism or news media. Yeah. Um, and that's increasingly difficult yeah, around the world. So um, if the government can ensure that these conditions are there for for journalists to seek um, the information that they need freely, um, Taiwan will continue to be a vibrant democracy. And for you, when you think about the challenges facing Taiwan's democracy specifically, what comes to mind? Well, I think um, the changing um, um, form of media is something that... um, is something that is a challenge not only for traditional media, um, but I think... Um, of course, know. a newspaper guy is going to be threatened by uh, new media. <laughs> Although you are the social media guy, so you're yeah. on the leading edge of uh, There, there the are newspaper. opportunities yeah. uh, in social media, but um, there are some challenges with, you know, um, in democracy what we want, of course, is uh, informed citi- citizens. And, um, and that's getting increasingly difficult because everybody is, you know, trapped in their own little world most of the time and mm-hmm. um and i think that's going to be an increased um that's going to be an increased challenge um not only to get people's attention but to make people or to to encourage people to keep track of issues that not only matter to them but to our society as a whole yeah. mm. all right so a number of issues to keep in mind as we move forward uh, with this segment. But let's hit those two stories I mentioned a second ago. Uh, pretty convenient that they came up this week, uh, tied in, I, I thought I thought pretty neatly, uh, to the theme that we want to look into today. So that worked out well. Uh, first up, perhaps uh, an indication of some of the advances that we were hinting at there a second ago. Uh, the global press freedom watchdog Reporters Without Borders has opened its first Asia bureau, and it decided to do so right here in Taipei. So... They are going to be focusing their efforts from Taipei uh, on Asian territories, including China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, North Korea, South Korea, and Mongolia. They're going to be focusing their efforts on, you know, uh, promoting press freedoms, supporting reporters in all of those various areas. And uh, according to the folks over at Reporters Without Borders... Uh, the choice of Taiwan reflects both, on the one hand, uh, the central location of Taiwan. Of course, it's cheap to get to anywhere in Asia from Taiwan. Uh, but also, they you know, they really did emphasize that uh, it also reflects the fact that Taiwan now is really one of the freest places in terms of press freedoms in all of Asia. Uh, according to their rankings, in fact, they say it is the freest place. So to understand exactly what they mean by that and what kind of work they're going to be doing here in Taiwan, I actually got on the phone earlier this week, Cedric Alviani, who is set to serve as the Taipei Bureau Director for Reporters Without Borders. Uh, Here is my conversation with him. (laughs) 
Cedric Alviani, thanks so much for speaking with us. Hello, Keith. So just to start things off, uh, I was wondering if you could maybe help us understand a little bit more about what Reporters Without Borders actually does. I mean, we see this word, you know, journalism watchdog, freedom of speech watchdog, advocate for journalists. But in, you know, specifically looking at what you guys are going to be doing in Asia uh, based in Taiwan, what is that actually going to mean? What is your work going to look like? So the first thing is that Reporters Without Borders is a nonprofit independent association based in Paris, but active worldwide. And its purpose, as you said, is to uh, advocate and support freedom of expression uh, in every country, in every territory worldwide. Uh, Our headquarters are based in Paris, uh, and we have correspondents in 130 countries. Uh, Our work is also supported by 11 offices, Offices, sorry, our work is supported by 11 offices and Taiwan will be the number 12. So talking about the, um, talking about the work we will do uh, in the area, our purpose, of course, is to uh, gather as much information as we can on uh, violations that would happen in this area. And also, we uh, want to provide as much as information uh, as we can regarding all cases of violations worldwide that would be useful for uh, Asian, for the Asian public to know. Uh, we uh, will also uh, try and work with uh, governments whenever possible to encourage them to improve the uh, media freedom situation. We also do support reporters with actions just like uh, providing them with a bulletproof vest when they cover uh, war areas or providing uh, some reporters with legal services uh, whenever they get in trouble with their own government or a third party government when they cover uh, war areas. Hmm. All right. Uh, So clearly a pretty broad focus that you guys have uh, covering a lot of different areas and a lot of different topics uh, concerning journalism. So let's talk now a little bit about why uh, you chose Taiwan. I mean, I think a lot of folks here in Taiwan are very excited to get this sort of recognition, to get uh, the prestige of, uh, you know, you, you out, out of all the countries you could have based yourself in, you chose Taiwan and uh, Taipei specifically. And uh, based on your press release, you know, uh, one of the things that you emphasize is uh, Taiwan is uh, close to everywhere. It's kind of in the middle of everything. But even more than that, uh, you emphasized uh, Taiwan's relatively decent record in terms of uh, freedom of speech and protection for freedom of speech. So maybe you could expand a little bit uh, on, on both those things. Absolutely. So, yes, first thing, uh, we actually were considering Hong Kong uh, as the place of... Uh, opening an office in Asia. Uh, This was the first idea. And actually, it could make sense because Hong Kong is somehow the front line for freedom of information uh, currently in Asia. But uh, after carefully thinking of it, uh, we considered it would be uh, too risky uh, for the Bureau physical safety, for the uh, predictability of the Bureau development, we couldn't afford uh, having the bureau uh, being shut down or having our staff uh, feeling uncomfortable in their daily work. So after careful thought, uh, we decided to shift the plan uh, to Taiwan. When I say we, it's the association, 
Uh, I personally have been, as you know, living in Taiwan for a long time, and I can testify uh, that the situation in Taiwan is uh, far, far better. Uh, I believe we can work very comfortably uh, in the Taiwanese environment, uh, and we don't need to uh, worry too much about uh, the uh, local authorities trying to interfere in uh, our daily work. Uh, it's interesting. So when you looked at all of the potential places that you could go in Asia, e e even a place, you know, I, I would think uh, Japan would be a, a relatively friendly place. But even comparatively to a place like Japan, uh, Taiwan comes out looking the best. Yeah, we we are on the radio media and I cannot show you the, the map. But actually, you know that Reporters Without Borders publishes every year a world index of uh, the freedom of press. And actually, uh, this World Index covers 180 countries. For your information, on the Asia map, Taiwan is the only yellow dot. Uh, the yellow color means countries in which there is basically few problems. It's not perfect. There are a few white color countries, which uh, mean the countries that have a very, uh, very, very good media situation, but uh, I must recognize that Taiwan is the best in the whole Asia. Talking about Japan, after, you know, the uh, Fukushima uh, incident, uh, there have been a lot of pressure on media. So actually, something important that our organization is always stating, like, even though you think you got freedom of press in your country, it's never granted. It's never forever. You have to be very vigilant and make sure that uh, the right is actually enforced. Mm. And do you think that overall, just the trajectory of f free speech freedoms in Asia is getting better? Or do you think that, uh, you know, there, there are increasing challenges? Uh, and uh, is that trend true in Taiwan as well? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things, and actually, Asia is some some kind of front line for uh, the definition of the media freedom, especially you. Yeah, just first, I want to be very clear that our association is basically a friend of all the people of every country uh, we are working in, and we do not wish to specifically target. A country or uh, we do not wish to be seen as an association that has some kind of uh, specific uh, hate or a problem with certain countries. We're basically friends with every every country. On a global basis in Asia, uh, it doesn't look like it's going better. Actually, the fact that uh, China uh, politics, economy is, are more and more powerful in any way uh, is a concern because they uh, have this, um, they, they, they are trying to redefine the notion of freedom of media or freedom of expression. Like uh, you sometimes hear uh, from China, people saying that uh, freedom of expression is a Western concept, is something that could not apply on uh, the Chinese culture or on Chinese culture areas. Uh, the fact that Taiwan has been applying and improving freedom of expression is just uh, the proof that it actually works. So you've been uh, based in Taiwan for a number of years. You've observed the local situation. 
What do you think it says about Taiwan that it's managed to, uh, you know, improve its ranking so much, or not just its ranking, but, you know, improve the actual uh, freedom of expression situation so much? Because if we look at this historically, obviously, it wasn't so long ago that Taiwan would not have done so well. Taiwan uh, had the martial law period and had uh, was operating under a autocratic regime. So, you know, having observed the last many years in Taiwan of uh, democratic achievements, uh, that must say something pretty good about the trajectory that uh, Taiwan is on. Yes? Absolutely. And uh, with regards to this matter, Taiwan is a very encouraging example, although paradoxical, because uh, it is somehow the fact that uh, foreign nations turn their back to Taiwan uh, to uh, diplomatically recognize China that kind of triggered Taiwan to open uh, its society and to um, uh, bring develop more freedom. And actually, this has gained the respect and the uh, friendship of many uh, people and countries around the world. This was some kind of, uh, yeah, uh, Taiwan used to say soft power strategy, which I believe uh, is something that has worked. And um, what I can see after uh, living in Taiwan or uh, coming to Taiwan very often in the past 17 years is that the Taiwanese people are very much attached to uh, the freedom of expression and democracy. And I, uh, do not, I, I, I do believe that they wouldn't want this to disappear. All right. And we have been speaking there to Cedric Alviani. He is the brand spanking new Taipei Bureau Director for Reporters Without Borders. Cedric, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Keith. All right, and moving along to another story related to freedom of speech and the media here in Taiwan. Fake news is a term that was coined somewhat recently. Of course, uh, the notion of having news that is not true, there's nothing new about that. I'm sure that, you know, going back to the earliest uh, the earliest reports that came off the Gutenberg printing press. I'm sure that there were some falsehoods there. Uh, but what has been new over the last couple of years is the ability to propagate news extremely rapidly through social media, through the Internet, through many new channels. And uh, that, of course, posed a lot of challenges, most uh, notably in the recent U.S. election, uh, where we saw the surfacing of many, many stories that did, had only tangential uh, relation to reality. Well, it's uh, concerning a number of folks here in Taiwan as well. Local media is known for playing somewhat fast and loose with the facts. Uh, some government officials now think that more should be done to combat the spread of fake news in uh, here in Taiwan. Uh, this topic surfaced about a month ago uh, in the context of fighting Espionage. There was a somewhat shadowy espionage bill that was discussed. Uh, we didn't actually see the content of that espionage bill, but we got some sense of what might be in there. And in that broader conversation about fighting espionage here in Taiwan, one of the things that was mentioned uh, was this idea of fighting fake news. And as soon as that came up, there was a pretty uh, fast backlash. Many media groups were saying that, you know, we don't really want the government involved in fighting, quote unquote, fake news, because one man's fake news is another man's maybe just inconvenient news, maybe just news that the government doesn't really want to be discussed this week. So it uh, raised all kinds of concerns there. 
Well, the debate has moved forward just a little bit, and we are now getting our first glimpses of what this all might mean. And to bring us that, I actually spoke recently with uh, Taiwan-based freelance journalist Nicholas Smith, who uh, actually wrote about it for the Time Digital Edition. That would be the digital edition of Time Magazine. Uh, and I got her on phone recently to tell us about uh, some of the measures that are coming out now. Nicholas Smith, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for this article that you wrote, uh, a lot of it focused on a conversation that you had with Digital Minister Andre Tang, who is, of course, uh, Taiwan's youngest minister uh, that comes in and is, she's responsible for all things digital in government, kind of coordinating a lot of stuff, especially coordinating uh, you know, information services that help the government run better. And she is thinking long and hard about how Taiwan uh, can combat fake news uh, without, you know, necessarily going too far in the direction of censorship. And in that conversation that you had with her, uh, it seems like what she's hit upon and what she's really interested in promoting uh, is media literacy for young people. So tell me a little bit about what she was telling you there. Okay. Um, well, first of all, she did make clear that um, she's been acting more as an expert advisor on these issues rather than driving it herself. She's she's kind of leaving that to the institutions who are in charge of these kind of, of issues. But um, she, she did say that... Um, she was previously involved in helping to draft a new school curriculum, which would be rolled out next year. And that that would help children to um, be able to identify fake news and essentially be like basic journalism training, where it would, it would encourage them to have more critical thinking about, you know, how do we consume our news? What are the sources of of this news, what's a fake news site, what's a genuine one, um, also how to just discern what the truth is and whether there might be more of an agenda or someone might have a particular agenda behind uh, a story um, or want to plant a story in a certain way to make you think a certain way. Um, and so uh, for Audrey Tang and for other people who have been involved in this, I think there's just a realisation that that young people and children and society in general, but it's, it's good to start young, need to be trained to just identify uh, and think more about what they're reading and where that might have come from and um, what motivations might be behind the news. And uh, I think, you know, with, with Taiwan in the, the political situation that it is, there is a recognition from, from leaders here that Taiwan itself could be a target of misinformation campaigns. So, um, yeah, so th- that was really, you know, Audrey Tang was just explaining a, a bit more about the measures that the government um, and educational institutions want to take to help children to deal with that. So let's expand on that point that you were making there just a second ago about the specific threats that Taiwan faces uh, with regards to fake news, quote unquote, fake news. 
now, an, a number of government officials have singled out Taiwan's uh, media in particular for playing a little bit fast and loose with the facts. I mean, uh, oftentimes, you know, the, 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 the headline that's on the front of every paper is government denies, da-da-da-da-da. And it's, we, 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 always, we see these constant denials, and oftentimes it does turn out that, you know, whatever the original story was ended up being based on very little. So we do see a lot of media churn in that sense in Taiwan's local media scene. Uh, then at the same time, uh, there is a lot of concern about, uh, as you kind of hinted at there, the Chinese media having its own agenda and framing various stories or inserting various stories that promote that agenda and uh, are, are, are not necessarily uh, as concerned with uh, the facts as we would, might uh, hope our journalists and our media to be. And so Taiwan's uh, domestic media faces uh, challenges in that respect as well. Uh, you know, when you're talking to Audrey and when, you're, you, when you were reporting on this, what sorts of concerns were you hearing uh, come out most frequently? I mean, the, the, the concerns I've, I've heard in the wider discussion, I, sh- I should say that uh, Audrey Tang, she, she uh, did not promote the view that fake news has been remote controlled by Beijing at all. Um, I think there's a tendency just to possibly point fingers at, at China um, without, ev- without the evidence to back it up. I'm not saying that... Um, you know, there is not a threat from China. But I think there also needs to be evidence of, um, say, stories being placed or or fake news being promoted. Um, Certainly from uh, speaking to analysts, well, you know, in the wider context of doing this story, um, the view definitely is that um, Taiwan's media needs to be more responsible um, because you know, if there are nefarious attempts to to plant fake news stories, then there's a wide open door here um, in terms of media not corroborating the facts and being too quick to um, jump on a story, beat the competition, um, and it's almost a race to the bottom without actually kind of taking a step back and thinking, okay, is this story? Um, factually accurate, should we do some more checks before we print it or or, or show it on TV? Um, uh, uh, one example was uh, in December when there were the pictures of this um, H, H6K bomber um, that first emerged, I, I think, from the um, uh, from China's Air Force, uh, appeared to show a bomber flying past or very in close proximity to Jade Mountain. And then a Chinese uh, media outlet um, seemed to corroborate that. And that was picked up by by the Taiwanese press, despite, um, and, you know, it created a lot of, of a big sensation here, despite the defence ministry denying that it was true. Um, and so... I think uh, there will there will be fake news coming from um, China or from other sources, um, also from you know local sources. Um, people in Taiwan have their own political motivations for um, promoting certain uh, narratives or certain stories. Um, if you look at the uh, the same sex marriage debate. Uh, is highly, highly contested, highly controversial. There are different narratives and different rumors floating around about that or about, say, Fukushima and nuclear safety. Um, 
So I don't think you can't always point the finger at China. There are multiple sources of fake news. But I, what's important from, you know, from what people are saying, um, uh, analysts are saying is what's important uh, is that the local media takes more responsibility um, to not then amplify uh, those fake news narratives. Um, and also, I, I think the general public just needs to, to be a bit more responsible in testing what they read. Don't just believe that because something's on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or whatever social media channel you prefer, that that means it's true. Um, and I, I come across that quite often myself on Twitter. I use that a lot and people will kind of tweet things out. Um, believing them to be true because they're on the internet and, and people have lost such faith in the, the mainstream media um, that, they, that they think a lot of things on the internet are true without checking the basis of those facts. Um, so one of the things that Oji Tang did also mention uh, alongside the, uh, the, the changes to school curriculums was that there's more of an effort within government ministries to... Um, to combat that and to have more of a kind of rapid reaction um, to uh, fake news stories, specifically targeting the, the social media channels where the, the stories would first appear or where there's more traffic. Because, I mean, let's face it, not so many people would necessarily go onto a government, boring government website to, to check out facts. They're much more likely to pick up the news from social media. Hmm. Right. So some of, uh, you know, it's 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 one thing to promote a, a education and hope that people get a little bit more rigorous with their own fact checking. Uh, and it's one thing for the government to promote its own line and, you know, make sure that when it feels that its uh, its actions have been covered inaccurately, it goes out and rebuts that. So that that's that's all fair and good. Uh, but of course, these this whole conversation about fake news in Taiwan specifically came up uh, about a month ago uh, within the context of uh, a broader discussion about espionage. There was huge concerns about the level to which uh, China has infiltrated uh, Taiwan's government and military, and some of the measures that were bounced around. Uh, you know, for example, maybe taking a leaf out of the book of. Uh, some of the stuff that's going on in Germany right now and uh, forcing social media networks to self-police uh, fake news. Those sorts of proposals really cause some concern among uh, media advocates that fighting fake news could become just a, another way of saying censorship, government censorship and going after media that the government disagrees with or sees as maybe even just inconvenient. So uh, this proposal to promote some kind of media literacy, uh, you know, is this kind of a middle ground approach, uh, so, a, a little bit more of a toned down way of uh, addressing some of these issues that you're talking about? Well, I, I mean, it's my understanding that the government has walked back from any um kind of strong measures to, that would be seen as censorship or, uh, you know, on regulating fake news. I, I think, um, you know, if you can't really, we can't be naive about it and ignore it, that it's a phenomenon. I think that uh, teaching kids how to recognize it and also making the public more aware of the dangers and um, the reality of fake news 
uh, is a good thing and it's necessary in a, in a modern world. I mean, the internet is changing so rapidly and it's, it's, it's having such a huge impact on society across the board, not just politics, um, that people are just, I think, adapting um, gradually and trying to learn how to deal with those consequences. Um, I haven't seen any, um, from what I've read or of people I've spoken to, I haven't seen any appetite from the government in particular to introduce fake news laws um, that could be seen as, as, as censorship. Um, I think that uh, they're kind of taking, probably taking a, a softer approach to it just now. I mean, you also have... Um, Facebook, um, Google, other other uh, social media sites are starting to to take the issue more seriously, and they they are starting to um, invest in tools that would identify fake news. Um, there's also, I think, Taiwan's got a very uh, vibrant um, civil society. Uh, you've got the Gov Zero movement, where you have. Um, kind of civil society, uh, kind of tech experts, and I, I mean that, that's generalising. It's, it's a very diverse group who are kind of actively trying to um, identify fake news and put the word out as well that it's fake news. I, I don't think this is something that necessarily has to be government-led. Uh, there are lots of different ways to raise awareness and, and to address the problem head-on. Um, so I, I mean, Taiwan uh, currently doesn't have any laws on fake news. I, my understanding is that there are laws on on spreading rumours, but only when uh, it's only when that sways an election or when it's you're talking about a, some kind of health pandemic. Um, but you also have your checks and balances in place as well. I mean, you have um, it, it wouldn't just be a case of the government saying that's fake news. I mean, this would have to be tested by a court um, and by the justice system. So I, I think people are perhaps being a little bit alarmist at the moment. Um, uh, you know, if they're saying that this could lead to a curb of freedom of speech. It's always something you have to be careful about and, and you know, check everything that, that's, that's coming out that could potentially become a curb on freedom of speech. Um, but, you know, Taiwan is um, one of the most free and open societies in Asia. So, you know, I from what I've seen, I think the government's taking quite a sensible approach to the issue. All right, and uh, we have been speaking there to Nicholas Smith. The article is School Kids in Taiwan Will Now Be Taught How to Identify Fake News. You can find it in Time Digital Edition online right now. Nicholas Smith, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. All right, and uh, we're going to leave it on that point and move now to our bonus podcast story. So that's it for the broadcast. For our bonus podcast story, uh, we're going to discuss uh, not necessarily the biggest story of the week here in Taiwan. Actually, I mean, maybe you can correct me, but my sense was it wasn't really that important of a story here in Taiwan. But it was a huge story internationally, a story that uh, runs with the headline something along the lines of Taiwan bans the eating of cat and dog meat. 
Uh, my sense is that this was part of a broader set of legislation, kind of uh, protecting animal welfare, upping the penalties for animal abuse. But if you look at the articles from the BBC and from all kinds of international publications, they really narrowly focused on this one issue of uh, Taiwan becomes the first nation in Asia to ban the eating of cats and dogs. Uh, so before we get to that international coverage, maybe we could just start with uh, what, what, what else do we need to know about this legislation that was just passed? Yeah, it increased um, the penalties, including longer jail time for those who uh, torture animals. Mm -hmm. um, it increases the um, like. Uh, it stipulates that you can't uh, walk your dog while it's tied to a motorcycle or moving vehicle. Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, people who violate um, the the Animal Protection Act and these amendments that were passed on Tuesday. Um, they will be photographed and their crimes will be made public. Yeah. Mm. All right. And so what is new here is uh, before it was illegal to trade dog and cat meat, but now anybody who consumes it, that is a crime. Yeah, the consumption part is the, the main takeaway. Mm -hmm. And this is what the international media has picked up on. You know, this was the um, the biggest, you know, the... The, the story with the most hits for at least our, our, our site. At the China Post. Yeah, exactly. By far. Yeah. By far. And most of the, the source of that traffic came from the U.S. Yeah. Really? Yeah, exactly. So I just, I just brought this up on Google, so just to run through the list. It was covered by The Guardian, The Independent, National Geographic, CBS News, Washington Post. PETA even has a, a, a little blurb on it. So uh, obviously... Uh, folks, folks in the U.S. are very interested in uh, people's habits regarding cats and dogs. Here, I'm not. I'm having a hard time pick up. I mean, okay, maybe, am, am, I, am I right in my sense that this was not that big of a story domestically here in Taiwan? Am I am I right in that? Yeah, um, because there are uh, local ordinances uh, already in place for different localities about right. banning dog and cat meat consumption, and there was actually some some comments from local netizens here saying that, you know, this report kind of makes it look like we just suddenly came upon this, you know, this right. was an issue before. And they, they felt a bit disheartened about that. Yeah, I mean, well, if, you, if you read the way that it's framed, it almost sounds like a bunch of people were getting sitting down to dinner and they were ready to eat their cats and dogs. And then, oh no, this law came in and it's stopping everybody from eating their cats and dogs. I have never heard of anybody ever once eating a cat and dog during my time in Taiwan. I mean, this is this is not really a thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. And so um, I think there was um, later um, uh, more of an effort, I think, is to put this in context mm -hmm. about, uh, you know, there were um, this law and the, the amendments that were passed on Tuesday are addressing um, issues ab about the torture of animals and right. high-profile incidents here where, um, for example, the military... Um, footage of, 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 of um, military officials and footage of um, people in the armed forces uh, torturing a dog to death. And this produced a huge outcry here. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of um, these, um, um, I think a lot of the amendment was, was addressing this and not exactly this uh, consumption issue. Yeah. And, and, and so, 
I don't know. I guess it it kind of just took uh, on a life of its own in the international press. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's really. Um, I, it's a really interesting thing about how um, um, media consumption works, um, mm-hmm. and in a, at a global scale. Yeah, mm-hmm. you you see how the the story breaks here. Yeah, and then how it changes uh, for the consumption abroad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no pun intended. No pun intended. Yeah. So uh, I guess uh, you're a little disappointed. You can't have your uh, dog and cat stew this weekend. Oh darn! Ah uh, darn! All right. Well, uh, we'll we'll have to find something else to uh, bring our spirits up after the show. Well, we are uh, just about going to round out the show right there. Before we go, special note, Yuan Ming Chao has never at any time in his life consumed cat or dog meat. Nobody write any letters. Nobody get any wrong ideas. Would not want to besmirch the fine character of uh, one of our very favorite commentators. So no question right there. But we are going to have to round out the show. Please do join us again next time. Time on this week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100, around about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website. That is the version you just heard right here. You can find it on iTunes, a couple of other places. Uh, You know, if you can't find it, just send ICRT an email. We'll hook you up. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Manconi, joined by the non-dog, non-cat-eating Yuan Ming Chiao. Thank you, Yuan Ming. Good to be back. (laughs) Thank you all for listening. That that, that was a bit of a forced smile he made right there, but we do appreciate it nonetheless. Even forced smiles we appreciate. We also appreciate all of you in the listening audience. Thank you. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.